I saw this quote the other day. There was no author attributed to it, or we would have put their name on the screen. The quote said, The Bible never once says, figure it out. But over and over, it says, trust God, because he's already got it all figured out. As we continue our study through the book of Joshua, we've reached the point in the story where the Israelites are about to engage in a battle, an epic battle against their formidable enemies, the Canaanites. And as any of our current or former soldiers in here know, there are some basic needs that every soldier has before engaging in a battle. Of course, you need the right training, right? You, you need the right weapon. You need the right battle plan. There are certainly some fundamental needs for every soldier in a war. But you know, one of the most basic needs of them all for every soldier in a battle is trust. Trust in his or her fellow soldiers. Because in war, the soldier's life is dependent upon his fellow soldiers. That's why people who come back from war will often remain very close for the rest of their lives with those they've served with because they've placed their lives in each other's hands on the battlefield. And as a result, there's a bond of trust that is not easily broken. In fact, there has to be because if they don't have that extraordinary level of trust between them, then they don't have anything because the battle plan was not created for each soldier to fight independent of one another. No, battle plans are drawn up and soldiers are trained and equipped to fight the enemy together. Right? Which means trust between them is paramount because you don't want to walk into that kind of fight against an enemy who's bent on killing you. You don't want to walk into that kind of fight without knowing, without a shadow of a doubt, that you can trust your very life to the soldiers who are with you. It's a special kind of trust. And do you know... That is the very same kind of trust that God wants all of us to have in him and in one another. Because as followers of Jesus Christ, we are at war against an enemy who is bent on destroying our souls for all of eternity. The Apostle Paul said, though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. Okay, believers and followers of Christ are not at war against this world. We're at war against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Ephesians six twelve. But if we don't trust our lives in the hands of our brothers and sisters in Christ, If we don't have that kind of trust between us, then we don't have anything because we were not created or equipped to fight this war alone. No, God's battle plan for us includes, in in fact, it demands a radical trust both in him and in one another because you can know what his plan is for your life and you can want it with everything inside of you. But if you do not trust God to lead you there or trust others to help get you there, when the big battles in our lives come, and we all know they come, you will continue living outside of his perfect will for your life, never fully taking possession of what is meant to be yours. Think about it. I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but I wonder how many people here today know that God has a plan for your life, and you know what that plan, at least in part, you know what the promise is, but you have yet to see it fulfilled in your life. You can almost see it, but you can't seem to take possession of it. Like it's right there in front of you. You know it's what God created you for, but you can't seem to make it your own. 
Well, the truth is, that's actually a fairly common dilemma for Christians. You know that God has a plan and a promise for your life, a dream he's put inside of you, a dream that you've been thinking about and waiting for for a very long time, but you can't quite seem to get there. It's always just a bit out of reach. Well, look, very often what that boils down to is an issue of trust or a lack of trust in God and in others to see that dream, that vision, that calling, that plan for your life come to fruition, which, which is how it has been from the very moment our enemy convinced the first two human beings on this earth that the God who created them could not be trusted. And ever since then, people have struggled with trusting God and trusting others. And yet, as we'll see in our story today, as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the book of Joshua, there are times in this life when we have no other choice but to trust God in each other, if we're going to be able to take one more step forward toward the destiny that he's created us for, which is exactly what's happening in our story here, as Joshua and God's people prepare for what appears to be shaping up as their biggest battle to date. It's a battle that stands between them, an obstacle between them and God's promise for them. And yet the entire battle plan more than anything else, is based on trust. Trust in God and trust in God's people and each other. It's a radical trust that makes no sense to the world, by the way, makes no sense to the enemy. In fact, it may not have even made sense to a lot of the Israelites at the time, but that's the way trust works, and that's the, why it isn't always easy for us to trust, because it requires us to rely on others even when we're not certain of the outcome which can be, of course, it's hard to do, right? It, that makes us uncomfortable. And as a result, a lot of people just tend to rely on themselves instead. They have self-confidence, but not a lot of confidence in others. Look, when you live your life like that, you will always be on the outside of your dreams looking in because God's plan requires us to be led by him and helped by others because we were not created to get there alone. There are no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. And so, look, self-confidence is great, but it's also woefully inadequate when it comes to realizing God's plan for your life. Until we learn to trust God to guide us there and trust others to help get us there, we will always fall short of taking hold of that dream, or whatever it is God has put in your life, and making it a reality in your life, which is actually by the way, how God intended for it to be. Because he wants us to learn to live with a radical trust in him and a radical trust in each other. And our story today is a great example of that. So we're going to jump right back in where we left off last time at Joshua chapter 6. This is a, a continuation of the conversation that Joshua was having with Jesus Christ himself at the end of chapter 5 where he appears to Joshua on the plains of Jericho with his sword drawn and Joshua asks him for instruction for the coming battle and Jesus responds, take your sandals off from your feet, Joshua, for the place where you're standing is holy. Joshua is looking at Jericho He's focused on what's in front of him instead of focusing on who is in front of him. As we saw last time, it's the Christ himself. He says, hey, bud, take your, take your sandals off. This is holy ground. And Joshua does that. He humbles himself before the Christ, which means only now is he ready to receive 
his marching orders, and that's where we pick the story up today. We'll start by reading the first five verses. So Joshua 6, 1 through 5. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every one straight before him. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant. I think I got ahead of myself. We'll stop at, at uh, verse 5. Now, Joshua gets these instructions, these very specific bizarre instructions from the angel of the army of the Lord about this coming battle. I can almost hear Joshua thinking to himself, what did you just say? Seriously, Lord? I mean, that's your plan? We've spent 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years anticipating this day when we would finally be able to take possession of the dream that we've had for so long. We faced hunger. We faced thirst. We faced threats from dangerous animals and even more dangerous enemies. We've traversed some of the most inhospitable terrain imaginable just to get here. We've built two memorials out of stone. We circumcised all the men in obedience to your command. We celebrated the Passover while our enemies loomed over us. And now we have armed ourselves, left our families behind, and prepared ourselves for an epic battle. And just to be clear, you want us to march in circles around the most heavily armed and well-fortified city in all of Canaan for a week with some trumpets and then yell really loud when we're done. That's your plan. Jesus, listen, in the history of battle plans, this has to be the worst one I've ever heard of. There isn't a military expert on the planet who would ever come up with this battle plan. You have to understand what Joshua knew about this city, Jericho, Tel Es Sultan. It's Sultan's Hill, as it's known today. It's one of the oldest fortified cities in the ancient Near East. Many archaeologists say it was the oldest walled city in the world, dating back to 10,000 BC. It was also extremely well supplied and well defended. In fact, you can go there today and see a 30-foot high fortified stone tower that dates back to the Neolithic period, 6800 BC, which is a poignant reminder of the defensive capability that existed in Jericho at its peak at this time Joshua was getting these instructions. It sat atop an impressive 10-acre hill, had an abundant natural spring inside of it, and fertile land. It was an oasis in the wilderness, often referred to as the City of Palms, right in the middle of the wilderness, which meant the residents of the city 
could wage a war of attrition, starving out the enemy who would be forced to fend for themselves outside of the city walls while those inside were more than adequately supplied and protected because in addition to its supply of fresh water and food, its walls were massively thick and its warriors would be perched on top of them, very well armed, looking down at the Israelites as the Jews day hike around the city with their trumpets. From a military perspective, for the Israelites, this is pure insanity. But if he was going to see the dream they'd held for so long, finally realized Joshua had to trust God because God was very clear with Joshua in verse 2 when he said, I've given Jericho into your hand. I've already given it to you, Joshua. In other words, it's already done. All you have to do now is trust me, which is the only way, by the way, Joshua, you're ever getting inside of that city. It won't happen by ramming the walls. It won't happen by way of sending in spies. We already saw how that went. It won't happen by starving them out. They have plenty of supplies. No, if you're going to take that city, it will be because and only because you trusted me, even when it made no sense to you. And therein lies the lesson for each one of us today when it comes to trusting God. You see, we don't always trust God because we don't always understand God. We want him and his plans to fit into our own narrative, into the story that we envision for ourselves. And so when he doesn't do it the way we thought he would or should, we hesitate to trust him. But look, God cannot be contained within the the confines of our human intellect or reasoning or planning. We want so desperately to understand everything that God is doing all the time. In fact, I know Christians who actually believe that God is obligated to explain himself to us before acting on our behalf. Listen, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God was pretty clear. He said, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As far as the heavens are above the earth, that's how far God's ways are superior to the expectations of human beings and our institutions. Not only are you definitely not going to understand everything that God does or commands you to do, right? He is also under no obligation whatsoever to explain himself to you. We, however, are unconditionally obliged to place all of our trust in him even when we don't understand what he's doing. If we're to ever take hold of the dreams he's put inside of us, one of the the wisest human beings ever to walk the face of the earth, the 10th century BC King Solomon once wrote, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5. That's what Solomon said. Just so we're on the same page about who Solomon was. This is how he's described in the Bible. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. So that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all the other men, wiser than Ethan, the Ezrahite, and Haman, and Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke three 
1,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. 1 Kings 4, 29 and 34. This guy was an expert on everything. Same guy, when it came to God, said, Trust in him with all your heart. And by the way, do not lean on your own understanding. Now, if Solomon, in all of his unsurpassed wisdom and understanding, was convinced that he had to trust in God, even when he didn't understand what God was doing, I think it's safe to say we should do the same. Okay, now look, you may be facing the biggest battle of your life right now. And you know that that dream, that plan, that calling that he's given you is on the other side of an epic battle. No matter how you try to reason it out, no matter how you try to figure it out, no matter what you've tried or what you can come up with, nothing seems to be working. Nothing seems to make sense. You can't see around it, over it, or way through it, but all the while God is saying, trust me. Just trust me. I got this. In fact, I've already taken care of it for you. So all that's left is for you to trust me and do what I tell you to do, even if it doesn't make any sense to you. You see, sometimes that's the hardest part of the battle. It's actually just trusting God because we feel helpless when we don't understand the plan, when we can't see the path forward. But look, if God is for you, who can be against you? If God is for you, you're in a no-lose situation. As long as you trust him, even when you don't understand him or understand what he's doing. This is exactly what Joshua had to do. Let's see how he responds. Verses 6 and 7. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. Uh, so Joshua does exactly what he's told to do. This, this is the radical obedience, by the way, that we talked about in the last chapter, which was born out of Joshua's radical trust in God. Because, of course, it's hard to be obedient to someone if you don't trust them first, right? But Joshua did trust God, even when he didn't understand what God was doing. Let's keep reading verses 8 through 14. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about at once, and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord, and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. Okay, look, it's one thing for Joshua to encounter the Christ himself on the plains of Jericho 
and to receive instruction about marching around the city, blowing trumpets for a week while the enemy watches you from above. But now Joshua has to give that same command to the people. Right? They aren't hearing it from the commander of the army of the Lord. They're hearing it from Joshua, a nearly 90-year-old man who has yet to lead them into battle. I just wonder, when they first heard his instructions, when he explained it to them in that moment, I wonder if they were thinking, what? Seriously, Joshua? That's your plan? We spent 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years anticipating this day when we would finally be able to take possession of the dream we've had for so long. We have 40,000 elite warriors in front of us, going before us, and you want us to march around the city in circles, blowing trumpets. Of course, we don't know what they were actually thinking. That's what I would have been thinking. But they did exactly what Joshua told them to do because they knew well and good if they were going to overcome their greatest battle yet, the Israelites had to trust Joshua. He was the man that God had chosen to lead his people at that moment in time. He'd proven himself not perfect, but faithful. He'd given his life right to serve them as he was leading them. The truth is Joshua had given them every reason to trust him, even though there was no way they could have understood this battle plan that he's giving them now. But Joshua had been with Jesus. And the people knew that Joshua was for them, so they trusted him and submitted their lives to his leading. And yet it's important to point out here that God's battle plan was specifically designed to teach Joshua and the congregation of people something about themselves, okay? This crazy battle plan, this wasn't drawn up by God to make a lasting impression on the enemy. Not at all. The enemy's about to die. God wasn't trying to impress something upon the Canaanites by having his people march around the city without attacking. No, the the Canaanites were already defeated. As far as God was concerned, this wasn't for their benefit. It wasn't designed to teach the enemy something. On the contrary, this whole plan was designed to make a lasting impression on the people of God. Because if God had said to Joshua, hey bud, storm the gates. You got these 40,000 elite warriors with you. Storm the gates. Go in before the people with your sword drawn and lead them into battle. That's what they had expected, right? That's what anyone would expect. Well, if they had done that, the people could have very easily begun to credit themselves later and Joshua with their own success instead of God. So instead, God designs a battle plan that leaves no room for discussion when it comes to who was ultimately responsible for the victory, which again was for the benefit of the Israelites, not the enemy, which is so... This is so profoundly meaningful for all of us today because so often when we're facing battles in our own lives and circumstances are not unfolding like we think they should, we wonder if we're doing something wrong. Or we wonder if the enemy's gaining ground on us. Or we wonder if God's going to even defeat the enemy or break down those obstacles that keep us from experiencing the victory that we so long for. And yet all the while, God's working on our behalf. In fact, he's already won the battle for you. He's already claimed your victory. Do you know that God is not even the slightest bit engaged with what the enemy is trying to do to you because the enemy's already defeated? He's not trying to fight against the enemy. He's trying to work inside of you. 
What God's doing is for your benefit. He's working in ways that are beyond your understanding so that when the victory comes, you cannot claim one scrap of credit for yourself. His battle plan for the struggles that we face in this life is meant to teach us to put all of our trust in Him. And along the way, He uses people who He has placed in our lives. People who have proven themselves not perfect, but faithful. People like parents and spouses and pastors and friends. He uses those people to confirm for us that the seemingly crazy amount of trust required for us to follow God into these battles we face in life is exactly what we need if we're going to overcome those battles. It doesn't make any sense to the world. It doesn't make any sense to the enemy. In fact, sometimes it won't make any sense to us, but that is by God's design. So there's no mistaking who it is that is responsible for the victory when the victory comes. So much of what we struggle with in this life, he lets us struggle with for our benefit. We're so worried about what's in front of us that sometimes we forget who's in front of us. When you're facing seemingly insurmountable obstacles in your life, it is imperative that you trust God and that you trust those whom he's placed in your life, those who are not perfect but have proven themselves faithful, those who have given their own lives to serve you and to lead you because they want you to fulfill God's plan for your life as much as you do. I I never seek counsel or take advice from people who I think are competing with me, want to be somehow better than me or achieve more than me. I don't care how successful they are, not interested. I want to talk to people who I know love me and want what's best for me as much as I do. Those people, not perfect, but faithful people that I can trust, may not make any sense to the world or to the enemy in those situations you face. I'm sure the Canaanites, by the way, who were standing on the walls of Jericho looking down at the Israelites while they're walking around blowing their trumpets. You imagine, what in the world are these guys doing? But That's what radical trust looks like. It looks like victory even before you experience it. Listen, listen to this part. This is the craziest part of this whole story. It's my favorite part. This plan for the Israelites to march around the city with the Ark of the Covenant, which the Ark represents the presence of God, the King of Kings, and the trumpets being blown, which announced his presence, and the soldiers following, which demonstrated the strength of his army. By far the most interesting part of this whole deal was that it mirrored the royal processions that were so common in the ancient Near East when a king was going out to pronounce judgment over someone or after a battle that had already been won. We have Hittite texts from the 13th century BC that describe these elaborate processionals each day from the royal palace to where the king would hold court and then back to the palace each night with the royal bodyguards and special chanters, they would call them, who would announce his coming and going. Very much like the Israelites marching around the city and returning to camp each night with their armed guard and trumpets blowing. And of course, victory processionals with trumpets and troops and the king were common after a successful battle in ancient times, which is what this plan by God for his people mirrored by design. You understand that's what it was. This actually wasn't a battle plan at all. 
because God had already defeated the enemy and now he was pronouncing his judgment over the city and having his people take their victory laps even before they entered the city. Because the battle had already been won. That's the assurance you can have in God when you face your greatest battles in this life with a radical trust in him. As we'll see, let's keep reading verses 15 through 21. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you've devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. So Joshua and the Israelites follow God's instructions to a T, at least up to this point. And as a result, the great walls of Jericho, or the wall, it says, fell down. The double casement wall, thick enough for people to make their homes inside, as we saw. At least a a portion of that fell down. Enough for the army of the Lord to enter, flat to the ground. uh, Allowing the Israelites to capture Jericho, killing the enemy, leaving the plunder, and burning the city. This is one of those famous stories in scripture that people love to tell but have a hard time believing to be literal of course because it sounds literally impossible do you know modern archaeology at the site of jericho by men such as the famed british archaeologist john garstang in the 30s most recently dr bryant wood in the 90s have both shown clear evidence of a collapsed mud brick wall not walls that were broken down from the outside but walls that had actually fallen down flat and they didn't fall inward They fell outward, creating a ramp of fallen bricks that the Israelites could easily go up into the city, every man straight before him, just as described in verse 20. There's also clear archaeological evidence of a rapid defeat in the springtime, just as described in the Bible, as archaeologists have found large stores of carbonized grain that had just recently been harvested right before the siege took place. Also, all of the jars that were found in the ruins were full of grain, right proving the siege took a very short amount of time since the people inside the walls didn't consume any of the grain that they would have in an extended battle. It's also important to point out that grain at that time was a highly valuable commodity. And so the fact that there was so much of it crammed into these jars supports the biblical account that the city was not plundered and at the same time there's overwhelming evidence that it was burned just as described in verse 24 as archaeologists have unearthed a layer of burned ash and debris at the site three feet thick another archaeologist Kathleen Kenyon wrote this based on her own findings in the 1950s she said the destruction was complete 
Walls and floors were blackened or reddened by fire, and every room was filled with fallen bricks, timbers, and household utensils. In most rooms, the fallen debris was heavily burnt, but the collapse of the walls of the eastern rooms seems to have taken place before they were affected by the fire. The walls had collapsed before the city was burned, exactly as described in the Bible. There's actually copious archaeological evidence that as God's people trusted him to do the impossible through the most unlikely set of circumstances, that's exactly what he did. And that's just what he's doing today, still in the lives of his people, when we trust him in the face of our own greatest battles. Let's finish the story, verse 22 to the end of the chapter. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land." So the Israelites destroy the city and everyone in it with the exception of a prostitute named Rahab and her family because of the previous agreement that she'd made with the Israelite spies back in chapter 2. We don't have time today to go back through all of that. We learned about Rahab. Uh, If you were here, if you weren't, you're interested at all, you'd do well uh, to go back and watch the, the message from that day. It's titled Chosen, and it tells the story of Rahab. She's one of the most remarkable characters in all of biblical scripture who goes from the lowest of low in terms of her standing in society to a wife and mother in the lineage from which comes the Christ. Unbelievable story. It's inspiring story about what God does through those who choose to trust in him radically and trust in his people. And so this chapter of the Joshua saga chronicles the outcome of Rahab's faithfulness to God and to the spies. It sort of bookends with chapter 2. And so as the Israelites are now laying waste to the entire city, try and put yourself in Rahab's shoes. The outer wall is collapsed. An armed invasion is underway. Tens of thousands of Israelite warriors are pouring into the city, putting all of the occupants of Jericho to the sword. The city is on fire, and everything around them is being destroyed. And out of the entire Israelite force, violently swarming into Jericho, there are two men who know who Rahab is. How tempting it must have been for Rahab 
during those days after the spies had left, but before this day, this attack. How tempting it must have been to leave the city sometime before the siege to take her family into hiding. And we know that she knew the lay of the land and she knew the best places to hide because back in chapter 2, she told the spies to go west of Jericho into the Jordan Valley where there were plenty of hills and caves, perfect places for them to avoid detection. How tempting it must have been when the walls began to collapse around them for Rahab to take her family and flee their house house inside the walls of the city that were collapsing instead of waiting it out to see if the spies would make good on their promise. How tempting it must have been to completely panic as your entire world is being literally destroyed around you and the only vestige of hope for you and everyone that you love is two men among tens of thousands of attacking soldiers. How tempting it must have been to try and surrender to any number of troops fighting their way past her door. But you see, any of those other options that must have been so tempting would have ended in the sure death of Rahab and her family. Now, there was only one option. If she and her kin were to survive the assault from God's people, Rahab had to trust the Israelites because as savvy and as smart and as calculating and resourceful and faithful as Rahab was, she could not do what needed to be done to see God's plan fulfilled in her own life without the help of others, without the help of God's people. And you know what? Neither can you. She couldn't talk her way out of this one. She couldn't hide her way out of this one. She couldn't plan her way out of this one. She couldn't bargain her way out of this situation. All that Rahab could do is trust that the Israelites, that God's people would keep their promise, which is a truth that we really, really really must accept for our own lives today. We cannot and we will not overcome the greatest battles of our own lives alone. You won't, you can't, doesn't matter how smart you are, how resourceful you are, it doesn't even matter how faithful you are because you were not created or equipped to fight this battle alone. No, to get to the other side of the greatest battles in your life, God says you're gonna need me to guide you there and you're gonna need others to help get you there. See, I... I see believers, followers of Christ, so often trying to fight these great battles in their lives alone. Why? Because they don't trust others to help them get through it. Many of them are resourceful people. They're confident people. They're smart people. Many of them are faithful in so many ways, and yet they're not willing to trust others, so they pull back. They pull back from the body, from the church. They, they might stay in fellowship with some amount of believers and call it being a part of the church. That's fine. But in reality, they're not willing to trust other people. So they run from the church and hide. I see it all the time. They don't ask for prayer. They don't ask for help. They don't seek fellowship. They don't contribute to the family of God. Instead, they opt to rely on themselves and keep the church, the people of God, at arm's length. Feel safer that way. I'm confident in what I'm going to do or not do. I don't know about these other people. The, the terribly sad truth of it is you'll never fully walk in the victory that could be yours until you're willing to trust your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because you weren't designed or equipped or called to do this alone. Does that mean you have to be willing to be vulnerable at times? It sure does. Rahab must, she must have felt incredibly vulnerable sitting in her house as the entire city is being destroyed around her, but sometimes trusting others means you have to let yourself be vulnerable. Does that mean you have to take risks at times? You bet it does. 
Rahab risked everything the moment she decided to trust those spies and she hid them on a roof and then lied to the king's men about where the spies went. Sometimes trusting others means taking great risks. Does that mean you're going to have to give some things up? Without a doubt, it does. Rahab had to walk away from everything she ever knew and start her life all over again. Because sometimes trusting others will mean giving up some things. But do you know what else it means? When you decide to truly trust your brothers and sisters in Christ, it means you're never alone in the fight. It means forming bonds with others that last a lifetime. Just ask our veterans in here. It means overcoming your greatest battles in ways that you never could when you're alone. Trusting others is not always easy, and it isn't always perfect, but it is the only way to get yourself where you need to be when you're confronted by the greatest battles of your life because that's how God created you, to need Him and to need His people. So look, here's the deal. If, you, if you've been keeping people at arm's length in your own life, maybe it's time to come in from the cold and trust the body of Christ, the church, to love you. It won't be perfect. Invariably, at this point, people say, yeah, well, I've tried that, Rob, and I've been hurt before. Join the club. I've been working in churches for 27 years, attending them for 53, and I can say with confidence that you, if you've been in the church for any length of time, you've been hurt by the church. We all have. Why? Because it's full of human beings. It's not an excuse, but it is a reality. A reality, by the way, that does not excuse any of us from having to trust one another, even still. By the way, you want to talk about being hurt by people? Rahab had been used and abused by men her entire life. Most of those were probably the king's men because they were the ones who most frequented her house. How easy do you think it was when two men show up, spies from a foreign kingdom show up at her door? How easy do you think it was for her to trust them? She had every reason not to trust them. It would have been infinitely easier for her to turn them into her own government and receive immediate respect and reward. But she didn't because somewhere down deep inside of her, God had been speaking and she knew it was time, time to come in from the cold and finally decide to put her trust in others, which was the only way she would ever be able to overcome this current battle in her life. See, I think, I think the siege on Jericho was as big or bigger of a test for Rahab as it was for the Israelites because at least they had the benefit of seeing God move miraculously on their behalf in the very recent past. He just parted the Jordan River until they all crossed on dry ground. All that Rahab had to go on was the word of two foreign spies, men who, by the way, were there under deceptive pretenses to begin with. And yet, despite all of that, Rahab chooses to trust God's people because deep down, God was speaking to her heart. And you see, I believe that today, God is speaking to some of you. And you know, down deep, that it's time for you to come in from the cold and allow yourself to trust your brothers and sisters in Christ once again. Does that mean I'll never be hurt again? No, of course not. This is, this is reality we're living in here. But it's exactly what God's called you to do. Will it mean being vulnerable at times? Yeah, it will. Will it mean taking some risks? You bet it will. Will it mean giving up some things? Without a doubt it will. But if you want to get to the place where you need to be, the place where God created you to be, then you're going to have to allow yourself to trust the other members of this family. 
You know, when King Solomon wrote, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding, the word trust in that verse is the ancient Hebrew word batak, among other things, it means to be careless. Trust. Not careless as in reckless, careless as in without a care. You understand, that's the kind of trust God wants us to have in Him and in each other. A trust that is so powerfully strong that no matter what battle we're facing in this life, we're without a care. We're devoid of worry or panic or stress or strife because we trust God so much that we know He will guide us through it. And we trust one another so much that we know our family in Christ will help us through it. It's a trust so strong that we believe the enemy has already been defeated. A trust so strong we're willing to be vulnerable. A trust so strong we're willing to risk it all. We're talking about a trust so strong that we'll give up whatever it takes to get to the place he's calling us to. And I know that may sound a bit radical because it is, but that's how Joshua overcame every obstacle. That's how the Israelites overcame Jericho, and that's how Rahab overcame her past. By living their lives with a radical trust in God and a radical trust in God's people. And we're called to nothing less. Nothing less than the very same radical trust in Him and in each other. For that is the only way we will ever overcome the greatest battles in our lives today. Maybe it's an impossible uh, obstacle that you think you'll never overcome. I don't know. Maybe it's a dysfunctional circumstance or broken relationship that you think cannot be reconciled. Maybe it's your past that you think you'll never be able to escape. Listen to me. There's nothing. There is nothing you cannot overcome as long as you're willing to live your life with a radical trust in God and a radical trust in the family of God. Let's pray.